John chapter 10. And this morning, we're going to read from verse 31 to the end of the chapter. John 10, 31 to the end of the chapter. Verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said, You are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful to be here this morning, and we're so thankful to sing about your love for us, just to remember together your goodness and that your love endures forever, your mercy endures forever. And Lord, just uh, we're just so grateful for all that you are to us, and we ask that this morning as we Consider your word, the words of Jesus, the teaching of the scriptures. I pray that you would enlighten us and open our understanding and help us to see more clearly into the truth, Lord. I just pray that we wouldn't leave here the same, Father, that you would encourage us and build us up. And Father, we just ask that all of this would be honoring to you and you would receive glory in our minds and our thoughts by our listening, by my preaching. So Lord, do a work, we pray, and bring glory to your name through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The opening line of the passage that we are looking at this morning describes explosive action, doesn't it? Verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. That is, they are bypassing the usual channels of justice, right? So they're not going to the Sanhedrin, they're not going to their leaders, they're not going to the Romans. They're saying, this man is clearly worthy of death and we're going to execute him right now with stones. They're calling for his immediate death, bypassing the usual channels of justice. Now, have you ever seen anybody do that? Have you personally ever seen somebody bypass the police and the usual channels of justice and seek for someone's immediate death with the objects at hand? 
I hope that none of us have actually seen that with our own eyes. I'm sure we've seen that on the news a lot. What do people usually, um, what are they usually offended about that they would bypass going to the police and seek to kill someone in their own strength and by their own power immediately? What is it usually? What kind of crimes would justify that sort of an action? Rape? You know, maybe a loved one gets raped, you say, I'm going to kill him. You know? Or someone's murdered, and so you want to take justice into your own hands and murder them. Or someone steals something exceedingly valuable to you, and your rage boils over, and you say, forget the police, I'm taking matters into my own hands. So it's usually for some serious offense or crime. So what is the serious offense and crime here? Is there a rape? Is there a murder? What's going on? What we see here is the, the offense that the Jews that is coming to the Jews is from Jesus. So think about this for a moment. Jesus himself, if he were around, just like he was in the first century, he's the kind of guy that would cause some people, maybe many, to bypass the usual channels of justice and say, we need to kill this guy and take matters into our own hands and put him to death immediately. Just think about that for a moment. Jesus brings that out of people. And this isn't even the first time it's happened. Isn't that amazing? So he has done this before. So far in the Gospel of John, we've seen that the Jews have tried to kill Jesus three times. Once, we're not sure how they tried to kill him. John doesn't tell us. But twice, John tells us it was by stoning. So they they try to grab stones and kill him. And each time they want to kill him, it's for the same reason. Making himself out to be God. Turn with me to John chapter 5 and look at the 18th verse. Here's the first time in the Gospel of John that the Jews seek to kill Jesus. And notice why. John John chapter 5 and look at verse 17. This is Jesus justifying his working on the Sabbath. He says in verse 17, My father is working until now and I myself am working. Verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John chapter 8, if you turn there with me, John 8, in the very end of the chapter, verse 58. Jesus makes the statement that before, that he he saw Abraham, and in verse 58, they say, uh, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. So they're saying, forget the usual channels of justice. He needs to die. They picked up stones to throw at him. And then thirdly, in the text that we're looking at this morning, John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus has just said, I and the Father are one after saying that he and the Father do the very same deeds, and that was just too much for the Jews, they pick up stones to stone him. And so that's why in verse 31, John says they pick up stones again to stone him, because this is something Jesus has been bringing out of them already. He's done this before. Now it's important to realize that when the Jews are trying to kill Jesus for blasphemy, it's not that the Jews really like Jesus, 
and they really are friendly with him, but they say, you know, Jesus, we love you so much, and we really are glad you're here, but this blasphemy thing is just pushing us over the edge. We wish we didn't have to kill you, but I'm sorry, you're blaspheming. We wish we didn't have to do this because we love you. That's not the case, right? They actually hate Jesus. They've hated him from the very beginning because Jesus, from the very beginning, did not side with them, right? Jesus, from the very beginning, came and challenged them, challenged their authority, challenged their teaching, challenged their righteousness. And he said, unless your righteousness is greater than these guys, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. These guys are misleading you. They're blind guides. Don't follow them. They'll lead you to hell. So he didn't side with them. If Jesus had come along and sided with them, it would have been a totally different book, right? And so they hated him right from the beginning because he testified that they were evil. So when they when they think Jesus is blaspheming and making himself to be God, now they're rubbing their hands and saying, we've got a good reason to put him to death now, right? We hate the guy already. If he was just a prophet like John the Baptist, we'd hate him. But we've got a great reason to kill him. We're fully justified in doing that. See, we're right to hate him. He's blaspheming. That's what's going on here. Consider the threat that Jesus' divinity would pose to them. If he is God, we're in really big trouble, right? If Jesus really is divine, like he's saying, then and he's not siding with us, then basically by implication that means God's against us or we're against God. And so they had some... Uh, interest in, in seeing him as a blasphemer. Human beings are selfish and wicked, and it's easier for us humans to resist the truth than to surrender to the truth. We might say, why, that's stupid. I mean, if Jesus is God, yeah, that's going to hurt a lot, because you have to confess that you're actually not on God's side, and that's going to hurt. But man, better to confess you're not on God's side and get on God's side, right? So that in the long run, you don't really have pain. But as human beings, we tend, and I don't know if this is true in your life, I know I can see this on my own, we tend to be stupid about this kind of thing, and we, we try to avoid the most proximate kind of pain, right? We often don't think about the long-term pain. I don't want the immediate pain of confessing my sin. And so we act foolishly, as they're doing. Now notice in verse 32, Jesus, this time, doesn't immediately slip away. Now, other times when Jesus, when they pick up stones to sow in him, it says Jesus kind of just slipped away. This time, Jesus decides to challenge their action and dispute their judgment. So they're saying, this he's blaspheming, we're going to kill him. He says, hold on here, I'm going to challenge this. And he actually succeeds in measure, because what we see at the end of this passage is that in verse 39, they stop trying to stone him. So in verse 31, they want to stone him. By the end of this dialogue, they just want to arrest him. In verse 39, the Greek word is they want to arrest him. They want to grab him. They want to take him to the authorities now. So now they want to take him you know, through the usual channels of justice by the end. So apparently Jesus' challenge to them actually works to some degree to diffuse the situation a bit. They still don't like him, they still hate him, but they're kind of ready to put the stones down and just take him to the leaders for further questioning. So he stands his ground and it works. He calls for a parley, a conference between opponents. 
before you throw any stones at me, you need to make sure you know what you're doing and you understand all the facts. And so Jesus asks them, many good works I have done and I have shown you from my Father. Which of the good works that I've done prompt you to stone me? Now, brothers and sisters, it's critical to understand this passage that we see that Jesus brings up his works in verse 32. He brings up his works, and he brings up his works again in verse 37 and 38. Do you see that in verse 37 and 38? So he returns to the issue of his works, and that's absolutely critical to understanding this passage. The works of Jesus are central and prominent in Jesus' defense of himself. I think if we were to ask Jesus face to face if he were on the earth incarnate, how do we know that you're the son of God? How do we know that you're divine? He'd probably point to his works like he does here. Now, by the works of Jesus, I believe he's referring to the broad category of all that Jesus does. That's not only his miracles. So he's not just simply saying, look, I turn, I turn, I multiply bread. So I'm God. But when Jesus says his works, he's talking about everything that he does. That would include his teaching as well. Everything he accomplishes through his miracles, through his actions, and through his teachings as well. So please think of works as comprehensive. Now here's a summary. Here's a summary of the works of Jesus, the good works of Jesus. Jesus preached the good news to the poor, didn't he? That's what, that's, do you see that in the Gospels? Jesus preaching the good news to the poor. And that is one of his works. That's one of the things that he does. He preaches good works to the poor. He demonstrated God's kindness, God's mercy, God's grace to the evil and the ungrateful and the unthankful, to the unrighteous. Just like he says in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, look, you know, God sends his reign upon the just and the unjust, to the good and the evil, to the unthankful and the thankful. God is like that. If you want to be like God and do his works and fulfill his will, then you also need to love your enemies and do good. And so Jesus did that. You can see that in his life and in how he gave hope through grace to those who are evil. Another work of Jesus was exalting the law and making it honorable. So one thing that Jesus did is he came and he said, you know what? The Pharisees and the leaders of Israel are dishonoring the law by their teaching, and I'm here to correct them and, and honor the law and tell you the truth about the law, and the truth about the law is God does not require any lapse of duty, and any sin, any lack of anything means you're unrighteous and unacceptable to God. You have to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect for you to be righteous according to the law. So we see one of the works of Jesus is honoring the law and, make, and exalting it to its rightful place. He attacked self-righteousness Wherever he found it, all your righteousnesses are filthy rags. So this was another one of his works. And Jesus was full of acts of blessing. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. In other words, Jesus did all the works that Isaiah 61 writes about. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to open the eyes of the blind, to proclaim freedom to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind. He did, 
Jesus was fulfilling these works. And when John the Baptist asked about Jesus, Jesus said, tell John that the good news is preached to the poor. Tell John that the dead are raised. Tell John that these works, the works of God are being performed in me. So which of these do you condemn me for? Exalting the law, giving grace to sinners like God does? Miracles of blessing? What do they respond to him in verse 33? They say, for good works we don't stone you. So this is a tacit admission that he does all these things. They're saying, we, we get it that you do these good works. We agree. But now comes their charge. But you blaspheme because you make yourself out to be God. The commentator William Hendrickson comments, to them, Jesus, what Jesus said was far more important than what he did. In fact, as they saw it, what he said concerning himself contaminated whatever he did, rendering the latter of no significance and value. So they're saying, we grant that you did all these wonderful things, but because you make yourself out to be God, we don't accept any of that witness. Now it's important for interpreting this passage not to misunderstand their accusation. They are not saying that Jesus is making himself out to be God as in God the Father. They're not saying, you are a man, but you're making yourself out to be God the Father. That's not what they're accusing him of. Jesus clearly, constantly distinguishes himself from God the Father, right? He says, I and the Father are one. The Father shows me what to do and I always obey him and do his will. The Father sent me into the world and I honor the Father. So Jesus is not claiming to be the Father and they're not accusing him of that. They're not saying, you know, there's only one person, God, and you're claiming to be him. That's not their accusation. Their accusation is rather, you're making yourself out also to be divine. You're making yourself out to be a God. You're making yourself out to be God next to the Father. You're suggesting there's plurality of gods here. Do you see the difference there? Larry Hurtado, it's, he's a recognized expert on the subject of Jesus' divinity. He writes about this accusation. The accusation is that Jesus is compromising God's uniqueness in making extravagant claims for himself. So the claims you're making are compromising God's uniqueness. And Jesus, in his response, is dealing with this accusation. Am I compromising the uniqueness of God? Am I making myself out to be a second God beside the Father? That's what he's dealing with. Jesus will argue that though he is distinct from the Father, he is likewise divine, and he's going to use scripture to show that that's legitimate. It's interesting, isn't it? The irony, of course, is that Jesus is not a man who has made himself God. Jesus is God who has made himself a man. The problem is, is that the, is that the Jews had no room in their thinking for the, for the concept of incarnation, right? When they thought about God, they didn't have room in their thinking for the idea that God could become a man. They had no room in their thinking also for the concept of a plurality of persons within the one being of God. 
So when they thought about God, they thought about a narrow monotheism. That is, there's one person and one person only, the Father. There's no room for thinking about a plurality of persons within the one being of God. And there's no room in their thinking for any sense of incarnation. And that's unfortunate because the Old Testament, brothers and sisters, never rules out those possibilities. True? Well, if the Old Testament rules out those possibilities, then we as Christians are heretics to the extreme, right? (laughs) So as Christians, we also affirm the Old Testament does not rule out the possibility of God becoming a man and that there is plurality of persons within the one being of God. In fact, the Old Testament even hints at that, as we're going to see. Or if the Jews did have a concept for those things, in their obsessed hatred for Jesus, they just forgot about it completely. They couldn't let any of the evidence, the clear evidence of his divinity, lead them to the conclusion that he was God or divine. It was was an impossible conclusion for them. The Old Testament, as I said, does not rule out the possibility of incarnation. It even hints at hints at that. Can you think of some verses where the Old Testament hints at the at the reality and possibility of incarnation? I think of two very famous verses, and there's many places we can go. Micah chapter five, verse two, tells us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. You remember this? And then it proceeds to say that the Messiah's origins or his his goings have been from everlasting, right? So it's interesting. They said he'll be born in Bethlehem, but his real origins is actually from eternity. So there's this fascinating statement that the Messiah who's coming has always been, which is something that is only an attribute of God. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 is another famous passage that says, Unto us a child is born, and a son is given. And you shall call his name the mighty God, right? There's many verses like this that suggest that the Messiah, although distinct from God, is yet God himself, is yet divine. Jesus, in another occasion, challenges the Pharisees thinking on this by quoting Psalm 110. And he says, who is David's, who is the Messiah? Whose son is the Messiah, right? And he says, it's David's son. Well, that's true. He is David's son. But if he's David's son, why does David call him Lord? For that psalm says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So Jesus is suggesting you're misunderstanding something. The scriptures hint that the Messiah is going to actually be divine, yet distinct from God, God the Father. And no, it's not super clear. But the possibility is there, and there's nothing in the Bible that says God couldn't become a man. What about the plurality of persons within the Godhead? Well, I've already shown that the Messiah is distinguished from God, yet divine. So there's one evidence of the plurality of persons in the Godhead. But there's another line of evidence as well. There's a similar circumstance in the person of the angel of the Lord. This is pointed out by Old Testament scholars. Who is the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord that does all these wonderful actions and deeds among the people of Israel. He is clearly said to be God in the Bible, in the Old Testament, but yet also seems to be distinct from God also. So he suggests the possibility or hints at the plurality of persons in the Godhead. And another verse that's famous, Genesis, the first chapter, let us make God 
uh, excuse me, let us make man in our image. Who is God? Who is speaking there? God. And yet he's speaking in a plural sense. Let us make man in our image. And then when man eats from the tree, and Adam and Eve eat from the tree, he says, the, the, the people have become like gods, knowing good and evil. They've become like us, knowing good and evil. Now, is it clear? No. Does it hint at plurality of persons? Yes. It, the Old Testament doesn't exclude that. The theologian Andreas Kostenberger sums up the issue well when he says, Jesus' assertion of oneness with the Father challenged narrow Jewish notions of monotheism, even though there are already hints in the Old Testament of a plurality within the Godhead, some of which Jesus was careful to expose. Now for the remainder of this sermon, we're going to look at another argument from the Old Testament, taken from Psalm 82, that Jesus brings forward in verse 34 to 38 to show his divinity. Now, admittedly, Jesus' lesson here, his argument, is not super easy to understand. Now, when we read this, did it immediately come to you what he was talking about? Right? Have you thought about this passage? What does it mean? What is Jesus saying with bringing up this statement, you are gods, and then arguing, if you are, if, if they can be called gods, then how much more can I? But what is he talking about here, right? So it's an admittedly not an easy argument to understand, and there's a variety of interpretations out there. And so this morning as we walk through this, I ask you to put your thinking caps on and uh, we have to think about this carefully and patiently. First, what we'll look at is what it does not mean. And then we'll unpack what it does mean. So first of all, what this teaching of Jesus does not mean. There are two interpretations of this teaching of Jesus that are unsustainable. And I call these views, and they're really just representative views of this kind of thinking, the LDS view and the Jehovah's Witness view, the Latter-day Saint view and the Jehovah's Witnesses view. They have an interpretation of this text that are, they both have an interpretation of the text that's unsustainable. Now, both of these views are classic examples, friends, of taking scripture out of context and isolating a passage from the rest of the Bible. Both of these views are classic examples of failing to bring to your interpretation of a passage a grasp and an appreciation of all that the Bible says on a subject. Does that make sense? And you're going to see that. The way they interpret this just doesn't grasp or appreciate everything the Bible says on the subject. So let's start with the LDS view. The LDS interpretation of this text is, is as follows. Jesus is being accused of blasphemy for making himself out to be God. In defense, he quotes Psalm 82 to prove that everybody is a God. So he's saying, you're accusing me of being, of making myself out to be God? You have a problem with my divinity? Well, the Old Testament itself says you're gods. We're all gods. Why are you upset? Does that make sense? No. <laughs> <laughs> he's saying, hey, the, the Bible itself says we're all gods. So you're misunderstanding here that I can totally be divine because the Bible says we're all divine. That's how the LDS interpret this passage. Now, there's two glaring problems here. Two glaring problems. 
Number one, we've already seen how Jesus, by his defense, in a measure diffuses the situation. They want to kill him with stones. At the end of his defense, they're willing to put the stones down and arrest him. They still don't like him. They still hate him. They still think he's worthy to be tried for blasphemy. But they're willing to... It kind of diffuses the situation. Okay, we're going to take you to the leaders and work, work this out. Now, the LDS interpretation of this, if Jesus was actually saying what he was saying, that would not have diffused the situation in any measure. It would have inflamed the situation even more, right? If his defense was, hey, why are you, why are you saying there's a problem with me being divine? You're divine too. They would have just thrown stones at him and killed him, right? So there's a glaring problem in the immediate context. The second glaring problem, of course, is that the Bible throughout, the Bible throughout, teaches that there is only one God and that human beings are not gods. The Bible teaches this throughout. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. We'll take a quick tour and examine some relevant passages here. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32 In verse 32, we read, Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you. Since the day that God created man on the earth, and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything been done like this great thing? Or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, signs, wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? So think about history. Has any, has any candidate ever done anything like I have done? To you it was shown. Why? That you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other beside him. Out of the heavens he let you hear his voice to discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words from the midst of the fire because he loved your fathers. Therefore he chose their descendants after them and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. I did all of this. Verse 39, Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord he is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. How many other others? <laughs> Isaiah chapter 44. Now if Deuteronomy didn't make it clear. Let's see what Isaiah has to say. Or God through Isaiah. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord is hosts, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. How many gods are beside him? None. 
There's chapter 45, Isaiah 45, flip the page, verse 5 and 6. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Verse 21. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let us consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I the Lord, and there is no other God besides me? a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. None besides him. That's the message he keeps hammering over and over and over. Now we see this exact same thing in the New Testament as well. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, there is no God but one. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4, there is one God and one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus. And James chapter 2, 19 says, you believe that there is one God, you do well. The demons also believe that, and they tremble. There is only one God. Now what about man? Well, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where man come from. God formed man out of the dust of the earth. He created his body out of the dirt, and he breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living being. That's the origin of man. Totally different than the origin of God. In fact, if you think, well, wow, man must be pretty special because he was formed from the earth and brought, breathed into uh, his, God breathed into his nostrils, his breath of life. The exact same thing is also said of animals as well. God formed the animals from the dirt and he's also given them the breath of life. It's interesting, isn't it? So whatever Psalm 82 and whatever Jesus means here, it cannot mean that everyone is a God. The LDS view is unsustainable. It doesn't take into consideration everything the Bible teaches. The Jehovah Witnesses view is as follows. Jesus is being accused of blasphemy, making himself divine. In defense, Jesus quotes Psalm 82 to reassure them that he is not God. Okay? To reassure them that he is not God. In other words, hey, look at Psalm 82. God calls other beings that are clearly not God, gods. Now, we know there's only one God and nothing else is God. The Jehovah Witnesses are right about that. And God calls other beings that aren't God, God. He calls them gods. That's all I'm doing. You know, it's just a, it's just a title. It's just a statement of honor. It's just about my office. It's not really that I'm divine or that they're divine. So whatever God's doing there in Psalm 82, that's all I'm doing here, guys, in my ministry. I'm not claiming to be actually divine. Does that make sense? Now there's two problems with this. As we've seen, Jesus' answer to them, his defense, in measure, diffuses the situation. It doesn't completely diffuse the situation. 
They don't think to stone him anymore, but they want to drag him before the leaders and have him tried for blasphemy. Now, if this was Jesus' defense, and that's what he meant to communicate it, then they would have dropped the charge. Oh, he's not claiming to be divine. Okay. But they didn't drop the charge. And the second glaring problem is that the Bible throughout teaches that Jesus is really God. And this is what the Jehovah's Witnesses miss. We've already seen in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be God, and yet distinct from the Father. In the New Testament, we're full, the New Testament is full of the doctrine of Christ's divinity, amen? Full of it. For example, the titles of God are given to Jesus in the New Testament. We read that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now we just read in Isaiah, that's what God said about himself, and Jesus is said to be that in the New Testament, right? He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's called in the New Testament the Lord of glory, which is a title of God. And he is in many places explicitly called God. The attributes of God are predicated upon Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is said to be holy. God is holy. Jesus is said to be immutable and unchanging. Now, how many, how many people... How many human beings can say, I'm unchanging, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? But God is the one who never changes, and yet we are told Jesus never changes. Jesus is said to be righteous. God is righteous. And what do we know about human righteousness? No one is righteous, right? No flesh will be justified in God's sight, and yet Jesus is righteous and blameless in the sight of God, sinless. How else but because he is God? Jesus is said to be omnipotent. He's said to have life in himself and to give life to whom he pleases. The New Testament tells us that Jesus does works that are only, that are the works of God, that are works that only God can do. For example, Jesus created all things and uphold all, upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, if you asked a Jewish person who knows the Old Testament, who created the world and sustains it and upholds all things by the word of his power? God, right? The New Testament says Jesus does that. Jesus forgives sins. Who has the right to forgive sins but God alone? Jesus does. The New Testament shows Jesus raising the dead. Judging the world. God is the judge of all the earth, and yet we see Jesus fulfilling that role. And we see Jesus saying, basically, everything the Father does, I do. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. I do all of his works. In fact, that is why they were so offended at him in the Gospel of John, because he's claiming to do the works of the Father. That's what the the problem is here. We also see that Jesus is worshipped in the New Testament by angels, by men. And Philippians chapter 2, quoting Isaiah, says that one day every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and will confess on their knees that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In the Gospel of John itself, all throughout, Jesus' divinity is stated in no unclear terms. John 1.1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
So there we have a plurality of persons within the one being of God. They're both God, but they're also distinct. In chapter 8, verse 58, as we said, as we saw, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. That's a clear statement of his divinity. And in chapter 20, verse 28, when Thomas, the doubter, the skeptic, sees Jesus risen from the dead, he proclaims him to be my Lord and my God. So whatever Jesus meant here by bringing up this psalm, it cannot mean that Jesus isn't God and that he's somehow alleviating the charge by saying, hey, 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 back off, guys. I'm not really claiming to be divine. So the Jehovah's Witnesses can't sustain their view in light of all that the Bible says about it. So what does Jesus mean? That's what we'll get to here this morning. So turn back there to John chapter 10. What does Jesus mean? First of all, Jesus' argument employs a typical Jewish form of argumentation. Now, Jews use this kind of argumentation commonly. It's called Calvahomer. Calvahomer. And it literally means light and heavy. It's a kind of argument. Basically, what it is is arguing from the less to the greater. Arguing from the less to the greater. Here's an example. If you call Stuart dim-witted, how much more will you call Billy dim-witted? Right? <laughs> if you think that guy's insane, how much more are you going to think this guy's insane? That's a Cal Valhomer argument. From the light to the heavy, the lesser to the greater. And so here is what Jesus is saying. It is written in the psalm, it's written in the scriptures that can't be broken, showing Jesus is, by the way, super high, um, high view of Scripture. If a person does not have a high view of the Bible and Scripture, he's not walking in, this, in following Jesus in his view. The Scripture can't be broken, and the Scripture says that you are God. God says this to other beings. And the argument is, if God calls these other beings gods, how much more should I be considered and understood as God? the one that, G, that God the Father sanctified and sent into the world. If God calls those guys gods, how much more am I divine? Actually, Jesus puts a little twist on it. If I should much more be called divine, because other, th- other beings that aren't gods are called gods, if I should much more be called divine, then you sh- certainly shouldn't have a problem with me being called the Son of God. Now this is hard, a little hard to, to follow, isn't it? But Jesus is making a strong claim for his divinity. He's not saying here in verse 26, he's not saying here that, you know, you don't, you don't need to call me divine, just call me the Son of God. I'm the son of God, but not God. What he's saying is, if I have even more of a right to be called God than these other guys do, then why are you so offended at me, or much more should I, should you not have a problem with me being called a lesser thing, the son of God? You see, Jesus hasn't been going around saying, I'm God. He did say, I am, 
in John chapter 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. And that was a clear statement of his divinity. But for the most part, he didn't go around saying, I'm divine, I'm God, I'm God. He's basically just gone around saying, I do everything the Father does. The Father's in me and I'm in the Father. And he shows me all that he does and I do it and I obey him perfectly. I'm completely united in my works with the Father. That's all he's been saying, which is essentially what it means to Jesus to be the Son of God. And yes, a perfect conformity of works with the Father does imply divinity. But he hasn't been going around saying, I'm divine. He's just been going around saying, I'm the Son of God who does everything perfectly with the Father. Okay. Turn with me to Psalm 82, and maybe it will become more clear as we consider this psalm and the logic that Jesus is using here. But bear in mind that it's the works of Jesus that he's been always pointing to. Jesus is always going around saying, look at my works. Consider my works. I am the Son of God. I do all that the Father tells me to do. Now bear with me. We have a few more minutes here. And I'd just like us to read Psalm 82 and just get the context of this psalm. It says here in verse 1, God takes his stand in his own congregation. Now in the Hebrew, it actually, maybe your translations point this out. It says, God takes his stand among the gods. He judges in the midst of the gods. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly? Now he has an accusation against them. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. And verse 8 ends the psalm with an appeal to God himself. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possess all nations, who will possess all nations. So just to capture the idea of the psalm, God is addressing a group that he calls gods, and he says, do justice, do right. When you don't do right, everything is out of order. The foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you're gods, but if you don't do right, you're going to die like men and fall like the princes. And then at the end it says, God's going to arise and do justice. God's going to arise and establish his works in the earth. Now some some evangelical scholars think think that God is actually addressing heavenly beings here. But most scholars believe, and this includes rabbinical scholars and evangelical scholars, most scholars believe that the people who are being addressed in the psalm are the leaders of Israel, the judges, the rulers, humans who are not God. So we're not talking about divine beings at all. We're talking about non-divine beings that God is saying you are gods. And the idea here that most scholars and even most Jewish scholars believe is that God is basically saying, by giving you my word and by putting you in place as a judge, I'm basically basically putting in the space of God for these people. I'm basically saying, you're God to these people. And you are bestowed with my word, which means you have wisdom, you have knowledge of what's right and wrong. 
And you even have responsibility and a commission from me to do justice. And if you do that, if you walk in wisdom, if you walk in knowledge, if you do justice in the earth and do right, then you're just like me in that sense. You are establishing justice in the earth and ruling in a righteous way. But because you failed to do that, you'll die just like man. I've given you this lofty office. I've given you this lofty calling. But because you fail at it, you prove that you're not God's. You prove that you're not like me. You prove that you're actually different than me. You're men, and you'll die like men. That's kind of the idea of the psalm. And then at the end it says, I will arise, God will come, and he will do what men don't do. So men don't live up to being God's. There's a vast difference, according to this psalm, there's a vast difference between being God and being man. And God essentially has given his law to man to say, show us if you're God. Here's my word, here's your commission, here's your job. If you do it, you'll be God's. But you don't do it, and so you'll die like men. What is the point of God giving the law? Did God know they would fail? Yes. And we know as, as Christians and Bible students that the reason God gave the, his commandments and his law and this responsibility to us was in fact to show us that no man or woman is good. If justice depends upon us, then the foundations of the earth will be out of place, right? What are we seeing today, right? What are we seeing every day? What, are we, what have we seen for the last 6,000 years? The law was given to show us that we are not God or like him in righteousness and that all fall short of the glory of God. And because we fail to establish justice, God will come himself and establish justice. And he does that in his son, Jesus Christ. God himself comes into the world as the Messiah to put the foundations of the earth right. Now here's the implication, and here I think is Jesus' logic. If someone were to fulfill justice and do the works of God, the implication from this psalm is that they would be divine. Does that make sense? If your failure shows you're not God's, then someone that succeeds at doing this is God, is divine. And that is why Jesus puts in his defense such emphasis upon his works. And he says, I am doing the very works of God. I am preaching the good news. I am, I am demonstrating the kindness and the goodness of God to sinners. I am challenging self-righteousness, destroying evil, you know, the evil ways of thinking. I am confronting lies. I'm establishing truth. I am blessing people. I'm fulfilling God's commandments. If I'm not doing this, Jesus says in John 10, don't believe me. If I'm not doing it, then you can rightly look at me and say, you're a blasphemer and you'll die like a man. But if I am doing it, if, the, if I'm doing the works of the Father, then I show by my works that the Father's in me, that I'm in the Father, that I am the Son of God, perfectly in line with him, and the implication is, I am divine. And so now I'd like to ask us the question in closing. When you see Jesus, and when you see his works, do you see God? 
That's the question. When you see Jesus challenging the self-righteous, tearing down the self-righteous from their lofty perch, and condemning all human righteousness as dung, and saying that every single human on earth, doesn't matter who your hero is, is unrighteous and worthy of death, do you see God or do you see a human being? Do human beings do that? You see what I'm saying? Do human beings speak the truth like that? Do human beings preach righteousness in the congregation? I mean, you might say, well, we Christians do. That's true, but as we've looked at many, many times, if we Christians have any truth to say, ultimate truth to say, it's not because it's coming from a human place. It's coming from a divine place. It's coming from the fact we've been born of God, right? It's because the Holy Spirit is in us speaking those things. But we should say, man, humans don't preach truth. Jesus is preaching truth. Jesus is divine. Or how about when you see Jesus loving his enemies? How about when you see Jesus being gracious? Do we look at that and say, there's a human being gracious? Or do we say, man, humans don't show grace like that, right? Humans aren't merciful. Humans aren't kind to their enemies. But yet Jesus is kind to his enemies. Therefore, Jesus, I see God in him. And brothers and sisters, there's no greater place to see God, I think, in the works of Jesus than seeing Jesus when he was mounted up upon the cross and he became a curse for sinners. Amen? That is not a human thing to do. Why are humans put on the cross? Because they've done something, you know? Maybe a human might lay his life down for a good person. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners and enemies and hateful, Christ died for us. So when you see Jesus on the cross, on that cursed cross, you see two things. First of all, you see the proclamation of the justice and the wrath of God. Jesus is propitiating the wrath of God upon the cross. Jesus is upholding the perfect, strict standard of God, and divine wrath is being propitiated. Humans don't show us that kind of thing. Humans don't proclaim that kind of thing, but Jesus proclaimed it on the cross. That's how evil your sin is. That's how evil the world is. God hates it so much, he crushed his son. And on the cross, we also see the love of God. As I said, no one does that. So when you look at Jesus' works, we see he is God and not, not a man. And then on top of that, you realize it's all a gift. He did all of that for ungrateful and wicked, undeserving people who want to stone him. And it's free, right? And it's just free for the having. Come and receive freely forgiveness and salvation and eternal life and blamelessness and and an eternal inheritance. You don't deserve it, but I want to give it to you because I love you. It's all free, just believe. No, humans don't do that, right? God and God alone does that. If he's not doing the works of the Father, don't believe. But if he is, then believe that the Father is in him and he is in the Father. That's his point here. That's what I think Jesus is saying in this teaching. So as we close here, I'd just like to look at the last verses from verse 39. Jesus' opponents will not receive this truth and they remain indignant. And so Jesus slips away now and they're wanting to arrest him. And it says he goes to 
um, the place where John the Baptist was baptizing. So we go back to the original scene now. Now John's not there anymore. He's, he's probably already been executed. But even though his voice is not there anymore proclaiming truth in the wilderness, I believe that John the Baptist, John the Baptist's voice was still echoing off of every stone in that Judean wilderness. Amen? And the people that were there with Jesus in that same place, they're thinking about John, and they're remembering his voice. They behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, you know. He's the one who's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He's the one that you need to believe. I'm just preparing his way. I'm sure his voice was still just ringing in their hearts. And in fact, they say everything John said about this man was true. They're still hearing his voice. They're still, John's witness is still pointing to Jesus even after his death, which is an amazing thing. And I think no greater honor to a witness of Jesus than that, that even after his death, he still speaks. I can't think of a greater honor than that. I'd love that to be true for all of us, actually. What a wonderful thing it would be that even after we are gone, that the people who knew us said, you know, I still remember the witness that he gave of Jesus Christ. He still points to Jesus, even though he's gone in our families and among our friends. What sort of a legacy do we leave when we are gone? We don't believe in Jesus Christ without evidence, according to this passage, but because the evidence exists and it's so powerful and the works of Jesus Christ produces the conviction in our hearts that he is who he said he is and he wins our hearts to him. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. And the question is, will we believe in him or will we stupidly resist the truth like so many do? So let's put our faith in the God who loves us and who gave himself for us. Stand together with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth the witness, the evidence, and Lord, especially for the works of Jesus that show us who he is and show us who you are. And so, Lord, I just pray you take this sermon and the words that were spoken and um, cause the words to go into our ears, into our hearts. And Lord, help us to see you in your son and the beauty of who you are, the beauty of your, of your person, Lord, revealed in Jesus your grace, your love, your righteousness, your mercy, especially displayed in Christ and the cross. And Lord, um, just encourage our hearts today with who you are, that you love us and that you died for us and that we have hope in you simply through faith in him. And we praise you, Lord. We worship you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.